Good evening. My name is Stephen, and I'm the young adults pastor here. And this is my third time ministering on a Wednesday night. And all three times I've been asked to preach on the love of God, which makes me think either our pastors have identified a personal area of growth for me, <laughs> or maybe they're just getting older and forgetful. I don't know which one. <laughs> Probably a little bit of both. Um, I could say that because they're, they're not here. So well, let's go ahead and pray and, and begin tonight. Lord, we just we thank you for your love for us. And God, we ask that you would speak to us through your word, that you would give us a greater revelation of your love. Holy Spirit, illuminate the passage this morning, that we wouldn't just gain head knowledge, Lord, but we'd be truly transformed by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this, week, this weekend, I got an opportunity, my wife and I, to attend some good friends, their wedding, and it was in Pittsburgh, about four hours away from here. So we had a great time. It was one of the, the first weekends that we've had away from our kids um, because they were hanging out with the grandparents. And uh, I just felt a new sense of freedom. Like it was just like, it was amazing. Um, may, I might have enjoyed it a little bit too much. Uh, but when we drove back, we pulled into my, our driveway. And as soon as we pulled into the driveway, I realized that I had left my computer in my computer bag in my hotel in Pittsburgh. And so I, I immediately, my first thought is, at 8 o'clock at night, I'm driving four hours back to get that. Because in there was my computer. And then as the, weeks went, uh, as the days went on, this was on this weekend, my, my horror began to grow and grow and grow because I realized I put some checks in there that I hadn't cashed. I put some of my school books in there, and I had homework assignments due. I had my Bible and my notebook, so I'm preaching from my phone tonight. I mean, it was just one of those moments. And so I called, and, and they said, you know, we'll ship it a couple days, no worries. But you know, the value of something we've lost determines the length at which we'll travel to get it. And tonight, I want to ask a, a simple question, because when we think about the lengths that God went to rescue us and to redeem us, there's really nothing else that compares. So what about our lives made us in God's eyes valuable enough to come and get us, to come and rescue us? And that's going to lead us to a series of other questions that we'll dive into a little bit more. But if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. We've been going through a series on Ephesians, and tonight we'll be talking about the love of God. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When I was, uh, before going to this wedding, I stopped by men's warehouse to rent a, a suit and there was a guy there who was working who we started a conversation and I just, as I got to know him, I asked him a simple question. I said, you know, what do you, where do you see yourself long-term? Is this where you want to work? Or where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years? And he said, oh, no, 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 man. I, I'm, I'm getting up out of here. I'm getting out of men's warehouse. This place can't hold me down any longer. I'm going to be going in Congress. You're going to see me on C-SPAN. You're going to be watching me on TV. I'm going to be a congressman. I'm going to be one of those big people in Washington, D.C. It was like very clear that he wanted to make sure that I knew that men's warehouse was not his ultimate destiny. That was just a stepping stone. He wanted to present the best image possible. And I had nothing against men's warehouse. I wasn't looking down upon him. In fact, I thought he was a nice guy, but he felt the need to justify the fact that he's working at men's warehouse. Because we have this thing as humans that we want to present the best that we can. We want to put our best foot forward. This happens in all areas of life. I mean, just look at our Facebook page or Twitter page or whatever kind of social media you may or may not have. We put our best picture. Nobody takes just a picture of them chilling in the couch, on the couch. They, I mean, you, you take some time and pick out that picture. And spiritually speaking, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, if you talk to somebody who maybe isn't following Christ about where they are spiritually, as soon as you mention God, all of a sudden the swearing stops and their experience as an altar boy, as a five-year-old in the Roman Catholic Church, or that their mother or their auntie is a pastor, or the fact that they pray every night before they go to bed is the first thing on their lips. But even us as Christians, those that follow Christ and are regularly active in, in his church, can do our best to present our best foot forward. And we kind of think of people in categories of well, can this person really be, be saved? Like that coworker who's always swearing and going out like, I don't know if that person can really get saved. Or that one crazy uncle at the family reunion, they might be a little bit too far from God's grace. And what we're implying is that there's something in us that was of value to God for him to save. Maybe there was a potential that he saw in us, or maybe there was something about our good works or the times that we went to church or the times that we prayed, something that he saw in us that made him say, you know what, I am going to save that person. But Paul starts this passage with a blow to that idea. He says in verse one, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. These first couple of verses here, verses one through three, Paul is laying out two truths that we have a really hard time believing about ourselves. The first is that we're really worse off than we think we are. Like we kind of see ourselves oftentimes as that starving artist who's just one masterpiece away, one bestseller away, one record hit away from making it big. Like in tomorrow, like maybe we're not where we want to be spiritually, but tomorrow we're going to get there. Tomorrow we're going to turn our lives around. Maybe we are saved. We're struggling in our faith, but we're going to get our act together. We're going to figure this thing out. 
we hear people say that. Maybe we've said that, that we're struggling, or we're, but eventually we're going to figure it out. But Paul here doesn't say that we were dying. He said we were dead. And I've never been impressed by a dead corpse. We don't see a potential in a dead body. When we see someone who's dead, that's it. And for Paul, what he's trying to communicate to us is that before we knew Christ, we were dead in our sins. But Paul, I mean, were we really dead? I mean, that seems a little bit harsh. I mean, didn't we have a little bit going on for us? I mean, like we did go to to church on Christmas and Easter. I mean, throw us a bone or something. But he lays out some characteristics of our deadness. He says that we were following the course of this world. You know, we oftentimes think that we were in control before Christ. But what Paul is saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that there is this course of the world, this world that's in enmity against God, that hates God, that's going in the opposite direction of God. We were following that course, almost like a roller coaster. You may get in a roller coaster, and yeah, you chose to get in that roller coaster, you strap your seatbelt on, but you're not in control after that. That roller coaster is taking you where that course is determined to take you. And at that point, you're just along for the ride. And the person behind the course of this world is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is our great adversary. He's the mastermind behind all that is wrong in the world, the pain, the suffering, the evil, And before we knew Christ, we were following his plan. Now, you may say, well, I I wasn't a Satanist. I wasn't doing seances and, you know, I wasn't playing with magic eight balls. But when we were following our own desires and passions, really, when we were following this course of this world, we were following Satan's plan, a plan of death and destruction. And this second truth that we equally don't want to believe that not only are we dead, but that our deadness is completely our fault. Because these first two, like when he says following the course of this world, following the prince of the air, a tendency might say, well, yeah. I mean, I was kind of doing, you know, I was following the course of the world. I was following Satan. They're the ones that are responsible, but I, I was just kind of a victim. But lest we think we're not responsible for our deadness, verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were following our own passions. We were following our own desires. We didn't fall into sin. We desired those things more than God. We saw what he treasured. He saw what, we saw what he commanded, and we decided that what we wanted to follow was of more value to us than him. Following is a willful act. So Paul's not letting us off the hook that easy. Many of us have experienced the pain of this fallen world of parents who have gotten divorced or maybe a dad who wasn't there or maybe sexual abuse when you were younger. And the lie that the enemy has for many of us who've experienced that kind of pain is that those things are our fault. And we know that those things are not our fault. 
But that is the effect of living in a broken world. That is the effect of sin that around us and people who have committed sins against us and against God. But there's another equally damaging lie. And that is that what's happened in our past and the sin that others have committed against us excuses our own personal sin. That the devil made me do it. But Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we are all held accountable before God for our sins, for the fact that our sins have led us to spiritual death. We, by nature, are children of wrath. And you hear on TV from competing worldviews, this idea that life is full of many doors. You can go through any one and they all lead to the same place. That you can be Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, doesn't much matter because we're all children of God. And Paul says, no, we're not all children of God. Because all of us, before we knew Christ, or if we haven't made a decision to follow Christ, we're not children of God. We're children of God's wrath. We're children of the wrath that our sins have brought upon us. Because God is a just judge, what we deserve because of our sin is his wrath. So we're not children of God. Yes, we're made in the image of God, but apart from the grace of God and apart from Jesus Christ, we are children of wrath. Verses one through three, Paul's basically saying that we're worse off than we think. We're dead, spiritually speaking. And we're responsible. We're the ones who are held responsible for our deadness. Not the dad who wasn't there. Not the spouse who turned on us. Not the teacher who spoke something against us in our past. That really bad person that we picture in our mind who's deserving of judgment is you and is I. It's me. So what about our lives made us desirable for God to save? Absolutely nothing. In fact, We've given him plenty of reasons not to love us, to not pursue us, to not save us. And what we anticipate in verse 4, following Paul's logic, is we're expecting the gavel of judgment to fall, sentencing us to what we deserve. And shockingly, we get something completely different instead. Paul's going to make a statement here that's so surprising, it's so counterintuitive, it's so powerful and life-changing that he has to explain it halfway through making it. First, let's look at the statement, then we'll look at his explanation. Look at verse 4. It starts in verse 4. But God, those two words, but God. There is glorious truth in those two words. But God. The second half of the middle of verse 5. Made us alive together with Christ. We expect in verse four, and and God. And God, because of our sin, wiped us off of the face of the planet. And God, because of his justice, because of his judgment, because of his righteous anger, wiped us away like Noah's generation or like Sodom and Gomorrah. But instead we get something different. That he made us alive. And that stunning reality needs an explanation. And it leads us to another question we have to examine. Why would God save us when we were so undeserving of being saved? I mean, nobody, when Osama bin Laden died or Saddam Hussein died, nobody was attempting to do CPR on them. 
They were enemies, and we were glad to see them go. For God, we are greater enemies against a mighty, holy, perfect God. We've rebelled against him, and yet he chose in his grace to forgive us, to pursue us. Why? Why would he do the unimaginable? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. See, Paul is highlighting the massive difference between our love as humans and God's love. And there's a book called The Great Divorce by an author named C.S. Lewis, the late C.S. Lewis, a theologian. And he tells this fictional story in which characters in hell are granted a bus ride to heaven where these heavenly spirits attempt to convince them to repent and to enter into heaven. It's a fictional story. We know that you can't escape hell once you're in hell. But C.S. Lewis is writing this so that we as his readers go, oh my goodness, I'm on my way to hell. I need to repent. And there's a character in that story named Pam who you identify with her pain if you know, know anybody who's, who's suffered to this length because she, her son, Michael, dies when, she, when the boy was young and she's never recovered from that pain. She's kept his room intact for years. She's refused to allow herself to experience joy or let to, to let her family move on from the pain because in her mind, she loved this boy. And she demands when she gets up on this bus ride to heaven and she's talking to the spirit, she demands to be reunited with her boy if she's going to accept God. The spirit tells Pam, she's got to repent. She's got to love God for who God is, not for what he can do for her. He's, she's got to love God on God's own terms. And I want you to listen to her, her response because while it's a fictional tale, it really speaks to the depravity of our hearts. She says to the spirit, give me my boy, do you hear? I don't care about all your rules and regulations. I don't believe in a God who keeps mother and son apart. I believe in a God of love. No one has a right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy and I mean to have him. He is mine, do you understand? Mine, 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 forever and ever. What Lewis in this book is doing is he's exposing what often passes for love in our society. That love, what we call love, is often selfishness. Serving young adults, I'm around a lot of single people, and oftentimes, and I've been here myself, there's a desire to get married, to love a woman, to have a wife. But if we dig underneath that desire, oftentimes, really, what's being said is, I don't like my life now, and I want someone to make me feel better. Or maybe a mom who's running around to different children's activities and sporting activities. Why? Because she wants them, she wants to feel better about herself by being a good mom. Or somebody who wants to use their gifts in ministry. They want to serve, they're zealous, they're excited. But deep down underneath that desire is a desire for someone to tell them how important they are and how indispensable they are to the ministry. I'm not saying this is always the case or even sometimes the case or always the case or 
this is the case for every person, but oftentimes our love for others is mixed with a love for ourselves. And here Paul is highlighting a very big difference in how God loves compared to how we love. God loves despite getting nothing in return from us. And that puts him in a whole separate category because even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we had no value to bring to him, we could offer him nothing. That's when he loved us. He made us alive together with Christ. And the immensity of that mercy and that love is so beautifully depicted in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Many of you know the story. A father has two sons, an older son, a younger son. And the younger son has the audacity to ask his dad for the inheritance early. Which, in that culture, effectively, what he was telling his dad was, I know you have an inheritance for me when I die, but you're not dying soon enough. I want to have this now. Then he goes out, his dad gives him his inheritance, he goes out, he wastes all the inheritance, and he comes back with his, tails between, his tail between his legs. And how does this father greet him? It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's a picture of the love of God. That he's longing, he's waiting, he's hoping for us to come home. When we rebel against him, even as believers, when we stray and we sin against him, he's not looking at us disapprovingly. He's not shaking his fist at us or wagging his head at us. He's waiting and longing for us to come home and to be with him. That's the Father's heart. It's that when we turn and repent, he meets us with an embrace. And perhaps the parable would be better titled The Loving Father more than The Prodigal Son. And in this story, the end of it, the older brother who's been obedient, who hasn't wasted anything, he's upset. He's furious because he hears the sound of a party that his father has thrown for this younger punk son who's thrown out his inheritance. And doesn't Jesus have the right to be disgruntled like this older brother? Jesus is our older brother. He is perfect suffering servant. He endured on the cross. He was perfectly obedient. And yet we, when we sin, neglect the sacrifice that he made on the cross. If there was ever someone who had the right to be disgruntled, who had the right to disassociate from us, it's Jesus. And yet Paul says, we were made alive together with Christ. That's there, there's an embrace, not just from God who sent his son, but the very Jesus who every time we sinned, we turned our back against. Jesus welcomes us as his youngest brothers and sisters, as a part of his family. Why would God save us when we're so undeserving of being saved? It's not because of our value. It's not because of what we offered, our goodness, the potential that we might have had. But it's because of the immensity of his mercy and his love. What are the implications of this love for our lives today? Because if you're like me, sometimes when you hear something like the love of God, it's kind of like this abstract, ethereal idea. Something that we know is true, something that we give mental assent to, 
but something that has no bearing on our lives in the here and now. And Paul gives us two implications of this love. Look at the end of verse five here. By grace you have been saved. Here's the first implication, salvation. And we've heard that over and over again. Pastor Brett has talked about the least common denominator. On your worst day, waking up and realizing, I'm not going to hell. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not going to hell. I've been saved from the wrath of God. I've been saved from the judgment that I so deserve. I've been saved from eternal damnation, eternal separation from God. Because of the love of God, I've been saved. You've been saved if you put your faith in Christ. Don't let that get old. That is the great news of the gospel. But then secondly, elevation. That we've been, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that word raised. It's the past tense. Because oftentimes we think of us being raised with Christ as a future reality. But this isn't something that we have to wait to die to experience. Because when we look in the mirror and feel abandoned or alone, we remind ourselves that we've been raised with him and are seated with him. We have relationship with God. We're with him. God is on his throne. And positionally, we've been placed right next to him. Now, at the point of our salvation, we were seated with Christ. We were seated with God. When we're passed over for a promotion, we realize we've been given the greatest promotion that can be given. We've been raised up and seated in the heavenly places. When we pray after hearing grim news from a doctor about our health or a family member's health, we pray from, with authority from our seat next to God in heaven that mountain that looks so big, that sickness that looks so daunting, when we remember we've been seated with Christ, all of a sudden we pray with another authority. We believe God with another faith because we know we've been seated with him. Notice the eternal time frame of both of these implications. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. See, God's love is so abundant, it's so immeasurable, it's so vast that it cannot be contained to just this age, to just this life. He saves us and raises us up for eternity so that we can drink from this eternal fountain of love forever. He showers us with love, with grace, and with kindness for eternity. That's the immeasurable love of God. And so next, Paul is going to summarize his argument by hammering home once again that it is God alone, by his grace, as a gift, because of his love, it's him alone that saves us. And that while we activate or receive this gift through faith, we can take no credit for it. Hear these words freshly tonight. They're two of the most famous and most glorious verses in the Bible. But hear them freshly. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. A gift from God to you that you didn't deserve, that you could never pay back, God has given you in Jesus Christ. 
That is the glorious gospel. That is worth carrying that news to the ends of the earth. That is worth opening your mouth and sharing with your coworker. That is with calling friends and family and telling them that news that because of God's grace, they can be saved. Amen. And finally, we're left with this last question. How ought we live in light of this great love? I mean, if somebody gets you a job or saves your life from a car passing by or pays off a massive debt, there's this feeling of indebtedness. But what about the great love of God? What about the debt that we owe him? Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are the workmanship of God. God has made us. We were dead and God made us alive. We were children of wrath and God made us children of God. We were headed to hell and God gloriously saved us. We were drowned, not drowning, drowned in our sins and he mercifully elevated us and seated us with Christ. He has completely refashioned us, reformed us, made us. We are new creations. And everything that is made is made with a purpose. I mean, if you go upstairs right now in the 180 loft, I have an office in there. Two weeks ago, that office looked like a college dorm room. The walls were blank, two desks, two chairs. And I'd be perfectly content with that kind of office, okay? I'm a bare minimalist type of guy. But I was convicted, and so I redesigned the office. I put in some books and a bookcase to help me study for sermons. I put in a desk and chairs to do work. I set up some decor so that if you came in there and, and we had a counseling moment or a mentor, whatever you want to call it, pastoring moment, you feel comfortable. <laughs> everything that I put in that desk, everything that I made that office to be was for a purpose. And God has made us He's redeemed us. He's saved us for a purpose. We are his workmanship. Why did he do this? Because he has specific good works before the foundation of the world that he had prepared for you and I to do. A coworker to share the gospel with. A small group member for us to pray for. A family member who needs an encouraging text. A spouse we choose to engage with after a long day of work a ministry for us to serve in, parking cars or greeting or serving as ushers. He had these good works prepared in advance for us. Before the foundation of the world, he formed us, he fashioned us, he remade us, he saved us for these good works. And every day, in light of this love, we ought to wake up and say, God, what good works do you have for me to do today? for me to do today. Not the super evangelist friend I know, not for the super holy person I know at church. What are the good works you have for me today? How can I impact the lives of the people around me today? How can I see people come to know Christ that you've placed in my life that nobody else in this room is going to meet? That's good. Amen. When I was in high school, there was a, a, 
a fellow high schooler who we played tennis against each other and we'd have these dialogues because he was an atheist. And so I would share the gospel with him and you know, we saw each other once or twice a year because we went to different schools. But then we ended up working at the same uh, tennis facility over the summer teaching tennis. And the Lord put it on my heart just to love this man, just to serve him, share the gospel with him when the opportunity presented itself. And one morning, the Lord put on my heart to write him a note just expressing how much his friendship meant to me. Now, I don't write, I don't write people notes, let alone I don't write God no, notes to guys. <laughs> so I felt very uncomfortable about that. And yet I could not get that feeling out of my, my heart that this was something the Holy Spirit was telling me to do. So I was so embarrassed. I wrote this note. I just stuck it in his tennis bag, hoping he wouldn't see it. And later that night, I guess it was the next day, he called me and he said, Stephen, you'll never believe this, but last night I attempted to commit suicide. I was in the hospital and an angel appeared to me. And I want to thank you for all the times you shared the gospel with me. I want to thank you for all the times you were a great friend. I want to thank you for writing that note to me because in a very real way, I felt the presence of God through your friendship. How many people like this young man are right around us? At our cubicles, in our neighborhoods, in our family. They're dead spiritually. They're on their way to hell. And God has rescued us and saved us and has given us this message to see them come to know him. He's given us good works for us to walk in. And here's the trick. The more we know and experience and meditate on God's love, the more we draw from the well of his love with the bucket of our lives, the more we get in his presence and are filled with his love, the more pure love we can dish out to those around us. Drink deeply of the love of God and then distribute freely to those around you. Amen? Let's pray. I want to pray for you this evening for a greater measure of the knowledge of God's love. And so tonight, I want you just to, in whatever posture is comfortable for you, but put yourself in a posture of re receptivity. Whether it's lifting your hands to God or sitting quietly, but I want you to have an expectation in this moment for God to download and your spirit more of his love for the words of this passage and the words of his word to penetrate deeper in your heart that you would know the love of God and I want to read to you a prayer over you from Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17 and 19 this was a prayer Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus he says that you and I'm praying this over you tonight, Grace Covenant, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. God, tonight, we want that love. We want to know that love in a more intimate way. We want to be full of you, Jesus, and of your love. 
We don't want to neglect those around us who are desperate need of your love. So Lord, fill us afresh tonight. Lord, let our hearts be full. Let these truths that we've heard time and time again that have rolled off of our backs, Lord, let us drink from them afresh tonight. God, let us drink from them and let us distribute them freely to those around us who are needy, for those around us who are hurting. God, let us distribute your love to people who desperately need it. In Jesus' name, amen.